Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10. Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my God, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Year of the Dragon is over. How can anybody care 
too much. Captain Stanley White, commander of the 5th Precinct and the most decorated cop in New York City, has declared war on Chinatown. I got a complaint about you already. Today there were 43 gang arrests, three gambling parlors raided, six sweatshops busted. You're only meant to shake up the gang kids. And now, an opening blow at the man who's been called the godfather of Chinatown, Joey Tai. Mr. Tai, can you tell us if there is such a thing as the Chinese Mafia? Mr. Tai, what is your comment? Mr. Tai, do you have any comment? Let me make this real clear to you right here and there. Joey Tai goes to the mayor, the mayor goes to me, and the word is, lay off. You think gambling, extortion, corruption, or kosher? We're Chinese Mafia. The investigation's in your mind. These people are the biggest importers of heroin in this country. The point here is you cease and desist. Nobody wants to win this thing, do you? You don't like it? Resign. Maybe everybody's right. I'm chasing something that doesn't exist. When you go to Letterboxd, Andy, what is the first thing you do? The very first thing, like by rote. If you were asleep, you would do this. Okay, the first thing I do is always check my activity. What is your, what do you mean by activity? Well, I check, I click the word activity. On the okay, page, what does that show like, you? It shows me what's happening in the world of people that I know. And so I look at the stream to see if there's anything interesting that people are watching and reviewing. And I kind of go through that. And then I always click on incoming so I can see, did anybody follow me? Did anybody read or respond to my reviews? And if so, then I look at what they thought of the movie and then I respond on their reviews. You know, it's kind of that whole. Oh, it's real community vibe you've got going. Yeah, that's what I love about it is, is this whole thing where I and, you know, it's always nice to see what other people that I'm uh, that I follow, uh, what they're watching. And I go, oh, you know, that sounds like a really interesting movie. I should put that on my watch list. And or or I can see that they gave something that I was interested in, like a one star and go, "Hmm, maybe I'll take that one off the watch list. (laughs) So so it's a a great uh, way to kind of track everything well i'm doing it wrong and and let me tell you why (laughs) but i also think that in me doing it wrong i also would like to talk about a feature that letterbox has that not many social services have anymore that i really love and that is really central to how we as a the next real community use letterbox and that is uh, the reviews rss feed per user so what i have for you is i take the rss feed which is the little rss logo when i go to your uh, your page and go to your reviews, there's a little RSS logo in the top right of the corner and I can right click on that and copy it. And I drop that into my RSS reading service, which um, is in a reader for me. And then every one of your reviews is delivered to my feeds where I read my feeds, which is all my news articles, all the sites that I follow. I also get Andy Nelson's reviews and I have other people whose reviews get delivered directly to me. I'm doing it wrong because that means I'm not actually commenting on your reviews, but I am reading every one of them 
So you go, oh, he's back on his Robert Redford kick again. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> Why is that central? Because if you are a community member on on our site, if you're a two reeler, we will take your uh, RSS uh, feed from Letterboxd and we'll pipe it directly into our Discord community. So everybody is getting your reviews immediately as you post them, which can be regrettable if you screw up or you find you haven't. <laughs> outsized uh, loving view of a movie that is widely panned. That's happened. Uh, and so it's really great. I think just the way they allow you to I- interact with reviews in any app, whether it's inside of Letterboxd or outside, is really fantastic. Yeah, and it does spur a lot of really interesting conversations. And if you want to upgrade your membership at Letterboxd to either the pro or patron membership levels, People who listen to The Next Reel can get 20% off that membership. Uh, you just go to thenextreel.com slash letterbox, and uh, you can get your 20% discount right there. And that is uh, that even applies to renewals. I got to see when my renewal comes up, Andy. I might just take advantage of that myself. Year of the Dragon, Andy. I don't know what I expected uh, going back into this movie uh, in our Oliver Stone origin story series. Uh, he wrote The Thing, directed by Michael Cimino, based on the book by Robert Daly. Um, it's a story about um, a lot of racists. Everybody's a racist in this movie. Um, and relationships are deeply fraught. Deeply fraught. Every relationship, deeply fraught. The The movie, I, I think generally, any movie where you're exploring this criminal underworld that is largely unexplored, right? I, or I should say underexplored with an eye toward authenticity is is welcome. And true to the background of the film, Chimino and Stone, they did their due diligence. I mean, they they uncovered a lot about the Chinese gangs, which was difficult work, as I hear it, to actually be able to tell these stories. And so it is with that in mind that it pains me deeply to say, I did not enjoy this movie. It was not good as a movie <laughs> i i had uh the reverse reaction to you i actually really enjoyed this movie um it is fraught with problems i had real issues with the uh the way that some characters were portrayed and the nonsense with relationships throughout this film i just i really struggled with some of the very 80s views of relationships and uh you know race there were a lot of problems that i had with this film i i think perhaps i you know i found a way to kind of separate myself from the 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 story the general story issues and just kind of went along with it and i i found it to be pretty interesting i actually enjoyed what it was doing what they were trying to do with the story in the end i actually walked away from this going, you know, this would make actually a really interesting TV series. Like, they had a lot of ideas that they were putting into the story. And unfortunately, I think that, I don't know if it's, you know, more Stone or more Chimino. I don't know who really um, kind of, I know I know Stone did a lot of the research, uh, wrote the script, and I know Chimino kind of went in and, and did a lot of work on it too. But I, I feel like this, the story ends up um, kind of just taking a lot of elements not as seriously as other elements. And because of that, there are just so many problems with the story. But I really enjoyed this idea of 
you know, this, this cop going after this, uh, kind of this, uh, I, well, they call it a triad at one point, but I don't think it technically is, I guess it's just a, a, a Chinese, um, mob group that happens to be in, uh, in the Chinatown area of New York city. So, uh, so I enjoyed it, but yes, it is full of issues. I want to really uh, hang my hat on full of issues because I don't know how you can watch this movie and look at any conversation that Mickey Rourke has with one other person on screen, save maybe his wife, who is, I I think she is a a saving grace, uh, Caroline Cava, uh, in in this movie, but find that to be an enjoyable experience. I think it's... It's terrible. And even hearing the way Stone talks about it, um, you know, the the way he talks about the words that are coming out of, of uh, the actors' mouths, the way, um, you know, it, it's clumsy and unrehearsed, uh, like all of these things come together to make a movie that I, I can't, like, they take me so far out of the story that I can't enjoy the experience at all. I mean, it's it's a mess. Uh I, <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think it's tough. Apparently, in the book, um, the you know, m- the uh, protagonist was not a, a vet, and and that this makes a, a predominant role uh, in in Mickey Rourke's character's life, Stanley White, in this. And this was, according to Stone, Chimino had already made the Deer Hunter, and he was all hot on the vet experience on Vietnam, and it had to have an angle. Uh, of Vietnam. So Stone tried to give him that. And as a result, we have a lot of exposition in this movie about history, cultural history, practical history, um, you know, the history of peoples moving into other places, uh, the history of the Chinese on the railroads and in the mines, and uh, the history of Vietnam Vietnam and the Vietnamese and, you know, his, his role as a soldier there and his feelings about soldiering. And uh, depending on who he's talking to, I often don't know what the intention is of of his character. I often I, I I find it it bounces back and forth quite often. It's it's sloppy. It is sloppy. It's very sloppy. And to that end, I I had to as I was watching it, I had to kind of step back and go, okay, he's such a terrible character. Like, why is this? Why is there anything interesting about this guy? He's he's just so terrible to the people that he's coming into contact with. I mean, I get it. He's a cop, and we've seen. We've seen plenty of depictions of cops this way, where they're racist sure. and they're they're going after criminals with little heed for the law. I mean, it's it's it almost is a trope in and of itself the way the cops that he is portrayed as a police officer here. But he also clearly has these race issues and everything. You know, he kind of lumps all Asians in with each other. Um, you know, he was specifically yeah. a, a soldier in Vietnam, but he very much feels you know, this way about anyone who is an Asian. And he says terrible things. And uh, and so I, I, I had to kind of step back a little bit and look at him and go, okay, so what, what are Stone and Chimino really trying to convey with this character? Because he's terrible. And, the, you know, the thing that I think makes him an interesting character, even if it's, if, even if it is problematic, is that I get what they're trying to do with him. You know, I, I see what they're trying to do with this is this guy who I I think, you know, suffered from his time in Vietnam and really kind of this is this is a reactive film, I feel like, for Stone 
and Chimino taking people who had served these Vietnam vets, and he's now a cop. And but it still is like something that he can't let go of, and he's letting influence his his job. And I, I, I think that that's interesting. And I was able to once I was kind of able to kind of get past him as this character that I just didn't like at all. I was like, okay, at least I can see what they're trying to do with him. And again, if they if they were allowed a longer like a TV series or something where they could really expand on that and kind of ex- kind of explore that character, I think that there could be something really interesting there. It's just it, did it come across that well on screen? Not really. And the only thing that I could really pull from was some of the exposition that they had, some of the scripting where I was able to kind of get that. And it just comes across in the relationships as rough. And that's that's really my all of my issues with this film. I, I enjoyed the actual investigation that uh, that White has into this this crime ring that he's trying to track down and stop here in in Chinatown. I actually think that's pretty interesting. And and watching John Lone uh, as the as the main antagonist in this, I thought I, he was very captivating, and I really enjoyed that side of the story. It's just. Boy, did I I struggle with every time Mickey Rourke had a relationship with anybody, whether it was uh, Tracy, the reporter, whether it was his wife, whether it was his captain, anybody. It just it just was a real, uh, a real tough time. And and I don't want to I, I don't want to saddle this as, you know, Mickey Rourke is a bad actor. And I don't no. want to saddle this with anybody uh, that this is this is movies full of bad actors. It's it's not a movie full of bad actors. It's full of performances that exist at at some magical intersection of, you know, a script that was unrehearsed and not not made for their performances, not made for their voices, not made for them. I I can't watch Tracy scenes. I'm so glad I'm finished with this movie because I will never watch it again because of her and and those relationships. It's so hard to watch her on screen with anyone. Anyone, <laughs> let alone Mickey Rourke, who has his own. Uh, this this is not <laughs> so far from one of his, you know, one of those great Mickey Rourke performances. I uh, but I, I think everybody suffers. Everybody suffers in this movie. Ray Barry, uh, Eddie Jones, it's just full of awkward marbles coming out of their mouths anytime they're on screen together. I think John Lone is one of those characters that I would, to your point, I I think this is a fascinating story and world, and I would love to see a John Lone version of this as as an extended series. There is nobody else in this movie that I would want to, to, that I would follow into a series. I would, not Mickey Rourke, not Ariane, not uh, Ray Berry, nobody. I just, they were, they were bad. See, and I, I don't agree with that. I actually don't think that they were bad. I think, if anything, I think that the, it, it suffers from the script. I think the actors did okay with what they were given, but I think the script was, I mean, it's just a very simplified version. This is, this is my problem with all of the scripting when it comes to writing these characters, is that it all feels just like the most base simplification of the characters, right? That's how everybody talks. That's how everybody reacts to all the situations. It feels like they were coming up with, like when, when you know, Mickey Rourke's captain is talking to him and he's like, nobody talks like that. It's just like, God, these lines are so stereotypical of lines I've heard 
far too often out of this type of character's mouth, like the reporter, Tracy, like every time she's, you know, we have a right, you know, just the stuff that she had, was yeah. saying as a reporter, I'm like, oh, I've seen all of this before. All of this, all of the way that these characters are portrayed is just like the most basic level of character writing. Like when she's like, you know, she has this odd relationship that I just don't understand with Mickey Rourke, where they're somehow drawn to each other. This whole, like, why do I want to have sex with you? Like all this sort of stuff. It's just like, oh. where, where does this come from? And then they, they have sex and then she's just like, I love you. Did you hear me? And I'm like, where did that come where from? Where did that come from? And I'm like, you know Nonsense. what? This is, this is Stone and Chimino. Again, it's just like the most flat base level of, of just writing that they could do to get the story across. And that's my problem is the writing. I think that, I mean, I don't mind any of these actors. I think that they could right. all do this given a script that actually had better lines. And that's why, and, and flesh it out and give more time to it. Give more time to these characters. I was so frustrated with the relationship with Mickey Rourke and his wife because right from the start, it seems antagonistic. Like there doesn't seem to be much love. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, she wants to have babies and he's never around and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden she gets killed. And it's like this, this, his life is over. And I'm like, when did he ever, like, I never saw that relationship. Yeah. What is that? Rela like, what are they trying to do? And they had such opportunity, I, I think, to create one of those great scenes between two great acting partners. And it comes across as clumsy nonsense. No Kramer versus Kramer, but just clumsy stumbling around and revealing almost accidentally important emotional beats in the scene that we should have we should have been able to feel right along with it but suddenly when like they already clearly their their relationship is fraught very fraught and then she <laughs> says but you missed the you missed the target practice i'm you missed my ovulation window right and I did not see that coming at all. Not at all. It was yeah. it was such a surprise that it it felt like an unearned surprise, and, and it was it was just incredibly frustrating. There are a lot of those. There are a lot of those moments where, uh, for example, Herbert, the Chinese undercover detective, at one point, Mickey Rourke Stanley says. He's tough as nails. He'll get it done. Something like that, right? How does he know? At that <laughs> point, Herbert had been on screen for like three minutes. Yeah. And that was it. I kind of felt like they were setting up this great sort of undercover cop buddy movie, literally then kicks Herbert out of the driver's seat of the car and says, you're undercover now. Bye-bye. And then we're <laughs> done with him. Like, we're done with him. He's gone. We see him a little bit actually moving uh, trash in a in in an uh, the restaurant so we get a little bit like one scene of eavesdropping he does come back into the story but it's like it's, yeah it's very That's, late it's yeah very late there is like how do we know that this kid is tough as nails when our protagonist has no relationship with him he's the only evidence that we have is that this kid has been at the firing range and missed every shot he is <laughs> not tough as nails at all. And yet they're telling us that he is and they're not showing us anything. It is terrible. Like, that's just bad. Yeah. And that's Dennis Dunn playing Herbert, who, you know, anyone who's a fan of John Carpenter's uh, films like Big Trouble in Little China or Prince of Darkness would recognize him from those films. Uh, not to mention The Last Emperor, which he was in with uh, John Locke. Yes. Yeah. But this right. was his first film. So. And I like him. I like him just fine. 
I love seeing him. It's great. I, I wish that he was actually in this movie more. I think there is a movie here where that focuses on Mickey Rourke's relationship with him. Mickey Rourke coming to terms with his own in, internal inherent racism against Asian peoples uh, as a result of working with him and unveiling some of those um, inner biases and allowing him to learn something and change and come to terms with them and bring down the big Chinese mob. And instead, it's it, it's so completely surfaced that they end up having to shoehorn lines like this into the film to remind you that, you know, that there are relationships here that that exist. The the slingshot relationship of Tracy is just a, another example of that. Like he he starts out as an antagonist with the media and he has this great speech about how, you know, what's killing this country is not drugs. It's not the this. It's the media. It's you, you <laughs> vampires. Right. He does this yeah. whole bit and then he's having sex with her. Felt very Oliver Stone. Right. Yeah, totally. Totally. So I, it's it is unearned. I think that that's really just the central failing of the of the film here is that and again, why I think if this was something that was a, a, a TV series that had a longer time to kind of explore these characters and the relationships and stuff, I think it could be an incredibly interesting film as it or a story as it stands. I feel like there's a and it could have even been found a way to work as a film. Unfortunately, I think the way that uh, and I, again, I enjoyed it. I still enjoyed this film, but the way that the the character relationships just all feel so poorly written they just they feel just straight out of like screenwriting 101 like you know first level type of character development it just you know whether it's the wife or tracy or any of these characters i'm just like this is just the just almost stereotypical types of characters that are written here with stereotypical lines that you expect them to say and um, yeah, it just it it falls flat in that regard. Let's talk just a little bit about Ray Barry, who is his uh, his captain, his chief. Yeah, I'm never quite sure exactly. I know he's above him, uh, but Mickey Rourke is the is the is the chief of his precinct. And then so it it goes, Mickey Rourke, and then of of a precinct chief, and then his captain is Ray Barry, and then there's the commissioner above him. Well, then there's also the guy who never talks until that one time when he fires him. And I was like, well, who is that guy? Yeah, he was like a sergeant, I, uh, I think. I, I don't know. I'm very bad with my police uh, rankings, just like yeah. the military. I, I don't have all of those uh, in my head as far as who's if, who. If Andy Samberg is, isn't in it, I'm not interested. So, <laughs> so here's the thing. I think this is an, is an area for exploration because it is an opportunity for Stone and Chimino to write a complex human relationship. Now, spoiler, I think it fails, but it is it is a powerful example of what could have been because we have this character who through exposition we find out has known Connie, Stanley's wife, longer than he's known Stanley. Right. right. They had yeah. a friendship. Uh, Connie then married Stanley. Stanley now works for for uh, you know, Ray Berry's character, Lewis. And now Stanley and Lewis are coming at odds because of the way they're handling this Chinatown problem that Stanley seems to know that there's something going on. Ray doesn't want to hear it. He just wants everything to go as normal. And there is, again, 
a whiplash experience of their relationship going back and forth from, um, you know, we're old friends. I'm glad I could get you this job kind of a thing. Now just do your part to I'm not going to do my part and I'm going to stand you up in front of the commissioner and you're going to say lines to me like nobody does that in here while they're still standing in here in front of the commissioner like what sense does that make like that is it is just the worst possible blocking of that scene and makes you question the entire relationship complexity that we had uh, you know potentially built their relationship comes to, uh, I guess, a head slash fruition when Connie is killed and apparently Ray lives next door and <laughs> has a rifle at the ready with his silk pajamas at all times, like comes running down the street. I, I, I just feel like did nobody st- stand back and say this is turns out this is this is nonsense <laughs> and see those are the moments where it's like when was it established that they had this that he and connie had this long relationship when was it established he lived down the street like things like that that end up popping up in the screenplay it's like oh well that i would have liked to have th- had that developed a little more oh i would have liked to have seen the captain over at their house for a backyard barbecue at some point to kind of establish that he lives down the street. Like these are the sorts right. of things that in a, in a more well constructed story in a film that, or just in a story that takes more time and really gives you all those things. I feel like we could have had that well-rounded story as it is. It feels like all of these things were left by the wayside because what they were really focusing on, which I'm fine that they focus on it is the is the crime story because that's the story i find interesting i really enjoy watching white trying to figure out what's going on in chinatown and what is john loan up to or is and i thought they did a good job of like the you know the fact that is john loan the one behind it is it you know who is it is this is it this white powder ma who's up in toronto like i enjoyed the mystery that they were creating there i enjoyed that world and if they had just stuck to that story and even just like left all the relationship stuff to the side and really just had the story about this, this captain who is trying to clean up this precinct and, you know, he's new to the place and he's, he's throwing all the rules by the wayside, all these, you know, under the table dealings that had been going on between the cops and the criminals before he got there. And now he's shaking everything up. And if they really just focused the whole running time on that story and just really explored him trying to, piece all this together i think it could have been so much better as it's as it sits with the relationship stuff miring it down i really feel that um they're they're leaving it feel underdeveloped because it just all feels so basic i struggle with it because because i think that the, the challenge is these iconic detective characters we've seen like iconic detective characters that have their own troubles. They're alcoholics, they're racist, they're horrible with women, whatever. But they all learn some lessons and move through the world in a way that that, you know, feels like they're they're able to transform. I don't get that with with Stanley White. And I, I think that serves to to the disservice of the movie, uh, because the final sequence when he says, you know, I just I don't know how to be nice. And she says, oh, you're really cracked, you know, and they kiss <laughs> and they walk off into it's like the end of of, uh, you know, a John Hughes movie. 
right? It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, no, it's the end. It's like an airplane version ending of like Chinatown, <laughs> right? They're walking yes. away from this massive thing. Cause I was like, what, what, where did this come from? Right. Like, what is this line that we're all of a sudden getting here? Exactly right. I just don't know how to be nice. You're really cracked. You know that? As they walk what, off arm in arm. Like, what are they trying to do with cracked too? Is that an 80s term that we just didn't know? Oh, might have. Uh, maybe. They're trying to do this noir thing where they're bringing back terms from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and it doesn't play with her character. Following up on that, what's interesting is that actually was not the line at the end of the film. In fact, they say those lines earlier in the film and they just loop them in. If you look at the lips, they're not actually saying those lines. <laughs> But the studio, are you kidding? No, the studio didn't like the original (laughs) line because what he said at the end, which honestly, I guess fits his character, but it's still, it's still is not that great. But he said, well, I guess if you fight a war long enough, you end up marrying the enemy. (gasps) And that was his line as they walked off together. And then I'm assuming she still said, you're really cracked. You know that I don't know, but, but, uh, so the studio, um, did not like that original line. They vetoed it. And so um, they. I'm they, embarrassed yeah, for that they, line. They that thought that it was line far was too politically incorrect. And so, you know, they, they didn't think it fit, even though this film, <laughs> it fits his character. And that's kind of the, the dark side of this particular story is that uh, it does fit this, this terrible character that, uh, that he was. It's just, it, it leaves me baffled that Tracy ever saw anything in him at all. I don't, I, di- I disagree. I don't think it fits the character. I think the character would have said nothing at all. I think the character wouldn't, I don't, I think that is a toss off bit of weird old racism that no one would have ever said. No one says that. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, maybe you're right. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty strange little line. Uh, apparently it was an Oliver Stone line that was in there. So. Yeah, I believe it. I yeah. definitely believe that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I did want to talk about some good things because I do think that uh, I know that we're talking about a lot of these issues. Um, I still found it enjoyable. And the thing that I really enjoyed was this crime story that we had here. I loved watching John Lone as a part of this family. In fact, I loved the whole crime family. I loved seeing all of the different people in it, uh, like Victor Wong playing uh, Mr. Young, who had that restaurant. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed the way that it played out, I enjoyed the relationships they had. I thought there was real interest in the levels between the young and the old and the respect people were playing and the way that Joey, uh, John Lone's character, like weaves his way in there to get uh, Victor Wong's character out so that he can take over. And then if I, you find out he's the one who's been behind all these things anyway. He's the one who had um, the former head of the family killed. And now he's setting up these dealings with his, uh, I think it was his cousin who's uh, over in Burma. Uh, where was he? Thailand? Yeah, he was in Thailand. Thailand. And, he, you know, he, you know, he meets up with White Powder Ma and takes his head and then he brings his head and throws it at his cousin. And like a lot of really interesting things with that whole story. And so I was, I, I was really enjoying everything going on with that story. And I loved how they spoke that brilliant blend of like Mandarin, but then they would throw English in sometimes. We talked about this on our film board episode with White Tiger, Mm -hmm. how they were doing that in that film too. And I just, I felt that that felt really authentic. And I enjoyed the way that all of that played out just throughout the story. And especially the way it built to that end at the docks where, uh, where White confronts them as, or tracks them down and then confronts them as they're trying to 
meet to get this uh, shipment of heroin off the boat, leading to that that climactic fight up on the train bridge. I just I really enjoyed all of that story. And if you cut it out, it's probably down to about it's about you know, 45, minutes. 45 minutes of the story. <laughs> but I just found that to be incredibly successful and it really drew me in. And like even moments like where White is he has the little they're doing a stakeout and they're they're listening to the wiretaps that they have in in Joey's place. And it's like a group of nuns who I assume are like volunteering to like help out. I, I was like, why are the nuns here? I don't know. But I really I was like compelled because these nuns were the ones who were there. And just like those moments, I just like this is this is winning me over right here. You have also recontextualized the movie for me as well. And the fact that there are nuns there is yet another airplane version of a detective movie kind of a thing. Like, I feel like if Frank Drebin was in there, I wouldn't have been surprised. <laughs> and and I think that's because I do. I agree with you. I think that's and I think John Lone, this is what I was saying earlier. I think John Lone is a standout. And I, I think that whole storyline is really great uh, it, because I'm I'm with you leading all the way to the very end, uh, which was not how the book ended and not how the original script had had ended. Uh, we can talk about that in a bit. But um, I think what they gave us an action movie ending, they gave us a standoff and the standoff was good um, because that. Ultimately, that relationship, even though it it is a, a small part of the movie and only one of the many fraught relationships, um, it, it is one that had to end this way. And uh, it, it felt good. And, and the way he has written, you know, that that sort of uh, exuberant public face of their relationships, like, here, let me get you some champagne and let me take care of your family. And the way, you know, Stanley constantly throws that back in his face, I think that, you know, that narrative of their relationship actually works pretty well. To me, and it sounds like this is where you and I differ, to me, that does not redeem the movie uh, overall. Uh, but uh, whereas it sounds like it does enough for you this is a film i could watch again i i see that it has a lot of issues um but i i can at least see what they were trying to do with it and i can go along with it even though there are some serious eye roll moments and probably some moments where i'd be okay getting up and going to the bathroom <laughs> like, ah, i don't need to watch this relationship with tracy right now i can what what's funny is that it, the hard part about about tracy's character is that she lives in a dope apartment that is another amazing thing I love. I guess they shot a lot of this in North Carolina. At uh, I think uh, Dino De Laurentiis had some studios there and built a lot of the Chinatown there to the point yeah. where Stanley Kubrick, when he saw the, the screening of this, I think at, at Con, he told uh, Chimino, he's like, wow, you shot uh, New York so well. It's just, I love the look of it. And he's just like, well, I hate to tell you, but all of that was shot in North Carolina. And Kubrick was totally fooled by the fact that uh, all of that wasn't because they they really crafted it so well. And uh, so I, I loved all of that. But yeah, they shot that Tracy's apartment stuff in New York. And that was something Chimino was really proud of the fact that he was able to get these shots in this apartment. I can't remember where he said the apartment was, but uh, at the top of some uh, famous building where you could get just amazing shots of the city with the bridges and Man, that shot of Tracy when she's, uh, I don't know, upset about something that, that Stanley <laughs> said. And she it's just, it's in the dark apartment. She's walking around and it's just this silhouette of her because the apartment's black and you just have this beautiful 
city at night in this kind of blue mm-hmm. light with the city lights. I was just like, oh my God, that was just stunning. Like yeah. just absolutely stunning. Really lovely. Um, I, I, the nods that they give to the fact that she's a journalist, right? That she has a bed where the footboard is three televisions and three VCRs. <laughs> like I thought that was. I thought like, that was what is funny. She, is she work at the net? Like, is she the head of the network? And this is yeah. her. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> right. I've never, I've, I've met a lot of journalists and I've never met any of them who had a setup like that at home. Um, and, uh, I mean, even my dad who, who ran a television station didn't have that kind of set up at our house. Like it just doesn't, it's just too much, but I understand there's a sensory kind of thing. You got to push. Uh, push some boundaries there but it was, yeah things like that were weird like when he brings his people over to her place to do like the stakeout stuff they're looking at all the photos and everything and then i'm like isn't he like the chief like i've seen like and this again goes to my my confusion with police roles because i think of something like uh beverly hills cop and i'm like isn't the chief the one who's always in the office like desk job screaming yeah. at his cops and detectives who are out there screwing things up. So I'm like, is but he's acting like a detective in this. And so he's totally acting like a detective. And he has that scene where he talks to all of his guys and they're they're lined up in rows and columns and and he tells them about how, you know, I don't want to see any cops on the take and uh, all of this stuff. But none of it makes any sense when he's out on the street most of the time. Yeah, I'm like I I, I was very confused by that. Uh, speaking of that scene was also rather offensive because he tells the guys, if I, if I hear that you're on the take, then I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, oh, I'm going to take you down myself or beat you up myself or whatever. And then, then that one woman cop is like, well, what if she's a lady? And yeah. He's like, well, she better bend over. I'm like, oh, my God. that is, it was horrifying. <laughs> yeah. There were, there were terrible moments. I mean, they do everything they can to make you hate his character. And that's, again, it's. It's not even the fact that they're just making you hate his character. It's that it's all at the most like like typecast version of making you hate his character. Yeah. And that's what's so frustrating with it. Why? Yeah. What was the purpose of having us hate his character? I don't understand that. Why do we need to hate him so much? The only thing that I can go to is that that Oliver Stone and Chimino were both using this as a way to kind of as as a reactive writing exercise, almost more than anything, to the frustrations they saw with Vietnam vets and kind of the react the way that they were reacting to the world. And I just felt like they were I, I felt like they were trying to portray the struggles that vets had in in returning to life, returning to a normal life and but also dealing with the the um, reactions they now had to Vietnamese, to Asian people. And I felt like they were wanting to do, tell us something interesting about that. And unfortunately, in the way the story is told, I just, it's like they never got there ever. Can I, can I share a few passages from Stone's book, Chasing the Light? This is his, his biography. Yeah. Many thanks to, to Brian Blake for pointing this out. And and I, I want to read uh, just a couple of passages. Uh, the first one, I, I want to read because of the way he talks about his relationship with the story and, um, and his relationship with Michael and what Michael was shooting for. Now, there was a year, now there was Year of the Dragon to make. Michael, who had already done The Deer Hunter, was dogged about Vietnam and, unlike in Robert Daly's book, wanted to give our detective in Dragon a Vietnam history, which presumably I could supply. 
What he wanted was a combination of Dirty Harry and the French Connection, a kind of vigilante cop who'd break all the rules, like Tony Montana, and wreak fire and destruction on Chinatown. Discussions and note-taking followed in this giant production office on Union Square, then solo writing sessions in my apartment uptown or in Sagaponic. Michael was a driven soul, priding himself on his on his monasticism, not unlike his detective hero, whom I'd named Stanley White after a colorful Polish-American L.A. homicide detective I'd grown friendly with. Michael became obsessed with the real Stanley, who was an authentic ex-Marine Vietnam vet and, like many L.A. cops, sometimes a great bullshitter. But his heart was in the right place. He'd worked undercover narcotics, yet understood a guy like me from the other side of the fence, who smoked dope and generally distrusted cops, especially narcs. So he goes on talking about what he's trying to establish here and says and, and talks about how Michael Cimino went completely authentically overboard in terms of finding the the right places and the right texture and like you say, building out Chinatown. Uh, he would call his production coordinator at 3 a.m. and say, meet me in Staten Island at this location at 5. I want to see the sun come out or give me a full location board on this or that or this timeline or this clothing company or whatever struck him in the moment, Stone says. And uh, it, to the point that it became uh, rather abusive. Uh, he was, he had, it sounds like a contentious relationship uh, with Chimino and what he was trying to do. On on some of the issues in the book, though, when you talk about the very end of the book, um, this, you know, American detective um, is, is trying to bring down this Chinese nemesis. And in the book, it's an Al Capone story. Right. In the book, he brings him down, not because of the murders or the drugs, but in fact, because of bigamy. He discovers that the Chinese nemesis was still married to his Chinese wife in Hong Kong and came here and married another Chinese woman. And that happened all the time, apparently, according to Stone, and that he was able to use bigamy laws to bring down this character and um and and that's how it wraps up in the book you know capone goes down for tax evasion ty goes down uh, for bigamy uh dino de laurentis hated it absolutely hated it he said what is this bigamy it's no good american audiences will hate it and that's what is born the bridge sequence at the end that's how they because they they came back and went for the the mano a mano standoff uh, at the end. Mm. So uh, finally, uh, last last point uh, is this passage on on his his sort of summarizing his experience. What can I really say about Dragon? I tried, but I was forcing it. The Stanley White characters rants, some quite racist about Asians, though leavened by favorable dialogues about 19th century contributions of the Chinese to America, didn't play out the same way in Ricky, Mickey Rourke's mouth as they might have with Al Pacino. Why? I think because Michael, as a director, loved excess, like De Palma, but in this case, the rants came out flat-out bigoted without the irony that they needed. Was it the script? Partly. But again, as with Alan Parker, after I'd satisfied Michael with the screenplay, I was not invited into the inner circle. Chimino was a control freak like Bregman, who, no question, but his request for authenticity at any hour of the night at any cost was in the end surface, not content. 
He should have had the writer at the table reading, at the very least, with the actors in the room, and forced us to deal with the screenplay in the traditional way, which is to read lines, to hear them, to rehearse them, if necessary to change them. It works, and to my mind, it's unbelievably sloppy of any film to commit vast sums of production without at least a minimum of rehearsal and revision, even if last minute. I'm sure I could have improved the script if I'd been encouraged to hang at the set, catch the inflections, relate to the actors, but Michael would not allow that. Nor would Mickey Rourke. Unlike Al, he wouldn't even acknowledge me as a participant. Mickey was the only god, Michael was the only god he served, or really, cult leader. I don't think I've ever seen such loyalty as between Mickey and Michael, nor for that matter would Dino, in his cheapness, have ever paid me per diem to do so. And having been through that demanding experience of the Scarface set, I wasn't inclined to volunteer. But even if I had, I doubt Michael would have accepted my services. After all, he was a screenwriter, too. Instead, he told me, go back to Platoon, get it ready. And so I did. Yeah, he had um, brought Stone on because he really liked the Platoon script, which Stone had written by now. And Stone came on to this because, and he got paid lower than normal uh, as a part of a deal because uh, Dino De Laurentiis promised him, you know, you do this and I'll get you the funding you need for Platoon. And so Stone came on. And then, of course, Laurentiis uh, could never find the funding for Platoon, so ended up reneging on that deal. And Stone had to go elsewhere, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. But um, but yeah, I, I did read that he said that uh, Stone said that uh, Chimino is the most Napoleonic director he's ever worked with. Yep. <laughs> so. Sounds like it was not it was not so much a partnership as a service deal. And uh, in spite of and, and this is another one where Michael or where Stone did due diligence. He was out there having dinner with these crime lords, crime bosses, the uncles. Um, you know, he was out there doing the work of trying to uncover, um, you know, what was really going on here. And it was apparently extraordinarily difficult to uncover these things. It was very difficult because unlike the Italians, who, you know, there is there is much more sort of overt, like, yeah, we know things are going on. The police know things are going on. There might be a detente from here to there. But uh, unlike this, just a, a lot of secrecy, a lot of extraordinary secrecy in the Chinese gangs. And so apart from, you know, getting the, the gang youths uh, who would commit crimes and they would get caught and uh, but nobody could ever really figure out as the story is told in the movie, nobody could figure out you know, what was actually going on at the highest levels of of Chinese gang leadership. And so um, I think he really tried to do due diligence to actually tell this new story in this new way. And I I really, I, I think the results, and it sounds like the way he writes about it, the results were not satisfactory to him. But I think that's why those elements that I'm so drawn to work so well. Like, yes. I think that everything with the Chinese culture, with the Chinese gangs, like, I find that so compelling. I love that. I love the fact that we have, like, women in the gangs, too. Like, everything about it was so interesting. And it just, like, the the shell around it was just, was pretty sloppy. Uh, so there's a, there's the, the scene after the, the um, you know, the two guys, they go in and they, the two young men, they go in and they shoot up the restaurant where Mickey is and Mickey shoots them and they come out injured, uh, which is fine. It's a big action scene. There's lots of glass breaking and, and uh, um, uh, apparently there, that's not, I don't think uh, he was, 
start again. Michael was, uh, Chimino was apparently uh, deeply moved by the Scarface mirror sequence. So the mirrors are shattering. And, and so he wanted to have a lot of glass and shiny things in all these big shoot 'em up sequences. And so you can kind of see that, uh, that nod in this particular sequence. There's just a lot of a lot of shooting and bodies and these two guys at their machine guns. And then they go back to their, uh, to their hideout. And we don't know at this point, but Ty actually shows up at this hideout. And so that's when we are actually able to make the connection that he was behind the shooting at the restaurant. And then they, he does this little single camera walkthrough of the apartment and says, you know, kind of essentially, you know what to do, clean it up. And we think they're talking about the fact that they actually live in a hovel. <laughs> they're actually in this apartment, and it's a disaster of, like, pizza boxes and cans. Uh, but really what happens is they go in and, and they they murder the two guys who had gone in and, and killed the, the people at the restaurant. And I think that sequence was super taut. It was a, a highlight of the film, of what the film was able to do well. And I think, to your point, celebrating the crime stuff is if even if that's all we've got to celebrate is worth celebrating in this movie. It, it is. Yeah. There's there is some good stuff in there, and that's why that's why I think that it's compelling because that story. If even if you just take like all of the stuff with with white that is involving that and just leave that in and just take all the other nonsense out, I think it's an incre- incredibly compelling story that that builds yeah. over the course of the of the whole stretch of it. Now, question for you. If it were Nick Nolte or Jeff Bridges playing Stanley White, uh, do you think that would have been any better? Or would they have had just as much problem <laughs> as Mickey Rourke? <laughs> I think they would have had just as much difficulty as Mickey Rourke. I don't, I don't, I think, I, I don't know, maybe Bridges could have given us something a little bit more nuanced, but you wouldn't have been able to hear him. <laughs> and Nick Nolte wouldn't have been able to understand him. Well, maybe, though, they would have had more of a relationship with Stone and actually listened yes. to some thoughts from him. So, yeah, yeah. who knows? Well, yeah, it's it's an interesting film. I, I think that there are some uh, serious issues with it. I, I, I think it's interesting that Quentin Tarantino says it's one of his favorites. And he says that that whole bit at the end of the train tracks, the shootout is one of his favorite killer movie moments. He says that uh, you forget to breathe during it. And, you know, I think I would agree. I, I was really surprised. Um, one, the fact that the train hits um, Joey's car, like I, that whole thing. And him trying to get out of it, I was like, that was pretty exciting. Um, and then, like, the way the bridge was lit, the way he's running, and it's just him and the light down at the end of it, and then the way they charge each other, shooting at each other, I was totally yeah. into that whole ending. I thought it was just fantastic. And they should have ended it, like, right after that, instead of the, instead of that nonsense that they had afterwards. Oh, God, so bad. Yeah. So bad. Um, Ariane is uh, Ariane Kozumi, uh, Koizumi Gomez. And she's now a menswear specialist and sales advisor at the Prada Group in New York City. She didn't act in much. She acted in this King of New York skin art and robot in the family as a dominatrix. <laughs> so not a lot of uh, films. And then like she was in one uh, TV episode once. So, yeah, I think that uh, never quite. I, I don't know if she just didn't wasn't into it or what or she just wasn't getting good reviews. I, I'm not exactly sure, but. I think she would have been fine given a better script. I I think that is absolutely true. Um, And, you know, at some point that that spark of, you know, finding really great young actors happens because those young actors are given really great scripts. Yeah. But when they're not, you just never see them. Yeah. 
that's how they disappear, right? Uh, camera, Alex Thompson is man behind camera. Not a, is this is Alex Thompson someone we've talked about before? I don't feel like we have, but am I missing anything? I don't. Well, uh, let's see. We never talked about legend or the saint. I think when you look at uh, Thompson's, like especially the body of work that he was DP for in the eighties. Uh, from stuff like uh, Excalibur and Legend and Electric Dreams and Eureka and uh, Labyrinth. There you go. We talked about him with Labyrinth. That's right. Um, That's what it was. I I definitely feel like he was tapping into, oh, and Alien 3, uh, Demolition Man, <laughs> but like some interesting <laughs> films later in his career. And then like the Hamlet, like the uh, Brana's version of Hamlet that was shot 70 millimeter. I He's definitely... a a DP who, especially in the eighties, I can see him working with Ridley Scott and uh, I can see why this film looks the way it does, especially when it's exploring either Tracy's place or the magic of Chinatown. I think that he was able to capture that uh, very, very effectively. And just, uh, just the lighting, I really throughout the film, it almost had like a neo-noirish kind of feel to it sometimes. And I just, I really enjoyed everything about the way this the film looked. I think it was good. I did find there were some uh, there were some choices in in again uh, the relationship stuff. Anytime you have just two actors together that I felt like and I I think this is also is where editing might suffer a little bit. Um I felt like could have been made more dynamic by doing more with the camera by being closer in on a character or moving back and forth uh between these characters just to give us a little bit more visual uh spontaneity when we're when we're suffering with the doldrums of this script. And I, I found myself in my head kind of reshooting it, some of these sequences, particularly when he comes over, this sequence where where Stanley comes over to her apartment, Andy, my God. And he starts and she says, "You, we can't do this. I was just here four hours ago having sex with my boyfriend and his pants fall down. He takes his pants down, right? Yeah. Well, he had already undone them. Right. He'd undone his pants, We, but we didn't see him undo them. And he stands up and she's still lying on the bed on her back. And he stands up at the edge of the bed and his pants fall down. And then he proceeds to lie down on the bed and have this conversation with her that I think is just as like banal shot a, a two person scene as as you could get. And I kept wanting like, let me let me just interact with the camera a little bit. I think if we move in, if we move back to her and show her while he's talking, if we do some like performative things with the camera, we could do so like we could maybe make something of this scene that started with his pants falling down and it. And I just was, I was disappointed like the whole way through. I I just felt like it was, it was, again, it was just clumsy. This movie did not do well on my flick chart. But you can't always, you can't always fault that to the DP. Like, I I, I think a lot of that comes to the director and his choices with the framing that he was, that he was wanting. And so I think when it comes to the way that it was lit, and certainly the DP throws in a lot of those sorts of suggestions. But yeah, when, when it's, uh, when it's shot with as much, dullness as that particular scene was or lack of creativity the fact that she's having this conversation with a man who has his pants down on her bed yeah should have been shot in a more interesting way so that like was like <laughs> like we're watching him as he's laying there with his pants down while they're having this conversation that was more about 
work than anything. (laughs) And like you could find ways to do some of this stuff. So it was actually a little more interesting. But yeah, I agree. I agree. I I fault Chimino. I I do too. I I do too. So we didn't talk about, we didn't talk about Chimino much. I mean, are you, I mean, so I've seen Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which I really like. The Deer Hunter, which we've talked about on this show and I really like. And this, which I think I liked more than you. I never saw Heaven's Gate and I haven't seen anything that he did after this. The Sicilian Desperate Hours or the Sun Chaser. Plus, he did a segment in To Each His Own Cinema, which was a little, like, short film collection. Um, are you, have, have you seen any of those other ones? Are you familiar with kind of him as a director more? I have not. I never went back and did any more than, um, than we did our conversation on Deer Hunter, which I'm with you. I think we really like Deer Hunter. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, I, I, I came into this movie with high hopes, you know, thinking that this is, this is going to be something on the, on the order of deer hunter. And, um, and I'm frustrated, which makes me, I guess, more concerned uh, about digging into the rest of his catalog or uh, not more concerned, but less interested. Check out Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. That's a great film. I really, really like that one a lot. Okay. Yeah. Strong, uh, Clint Eastwood and Jeff Bridges. Film. You know, the music, uh, you know, I thought David Mansfield's music, uh, he's one of those composers that I, I never, I, I've heard a few things of his. I never think about him as a composer. And then I listened to this. I'm like, yeah, you know, it was okay. Oftentimes it felt uh, disconnected from the film and it felt bigger than kind of what the film was. Um, you know, he's somebody that has started, starting with Heaven's Gate, has worked with Tomino a few times. Um, but I didn't really, it didn't do much for me. I agree with you. It did not do a lot for me either. Uh, it is, but, but I, I went in maybe overly apologetic, pre apologetic for the music because I am so, like, it had a lot of the synth and the 80s stuff going on. And I just, I'm not with that tone right now. <laughs> and I, I really struggled with it. Um, and uh, and and so I, I feel like it just takes me out. I'm not an 80s fan. I I like it in context of the movies generally, and some of the scores I like. Uh, this is just one where it just it didn't connect. So yeah, super dated yeah, yeah. too. How to do it award season? Did it get any love? You know, it did. Although most of them were at the Razzies, but it did have one win with ten other nominations. At the Golden Globes, John Lone was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in a in a uh, motion picture, but he lost to Klaus Maria Brandauer in Out of Africa. You know, I watched that recently because, uh, you know, I'm still going through my Robert Redford movie marathon, and I thought Brandauer was fine in Out of Africa. I actually would have picked John Lone here between the two. I thought John Lone was just spectacular. And you can see why uh, when uh, Bertolucci reached out to Chimino about him, you can see why He's, you know, very readily said, yes, cast him in The Last Emperor. Yeah, no, I I'd certainly agree with that. And The Shadow. <laughs> because clearly from this movie, you'd see what evil lurks in the hearts of men. He, he knows. That's right. He sure does. Also at the Golden Globes, David Mansfield weirdly was nominated for Best Original Score, but lost to Out of Africa. That's an easy uh, one to say yes. Uh, they got it right on that one. Cahiers du Cinema, uh, they nominated for Best Film. It came in third place behind Hail Mary and Detective, both by Jean-Luc Godard, uh, which I haven't, I've seen neither of those, so I can't speak to them. But, uh, you know, it, it was interesting the way that they kind of choose them and rank them like that. 
And, and the, at the Caesar Awards, the French Oscars, it was nominated for Best Foreign Film, but lost to Woody Allen's The Purple Rose of Cairo. I would definitely agree with that. At the Razzie Awards, I did mention this. It was nominated for Worst Picture, but lost to Rambo First Blood Part Two. Worst Actress for Ariane, who lost to Linda Blair for Night Patrol and Savage Island. Uh, worst Director, uh, Chimino, but lost to Sylvester Stallone for Rocky Four. Worst, <laughs> worst Screenplay, uh, but lost to Rambo First Blood Part Two. And Worst New Star, Ariane, but she lost to Bridget Nielsen for Red Sonja and Rocky Four. <laughs> Last but not least, and this is an interesting one. It, this is what it won for, the Joseph Plateau Awards. It won Best Film. Now, I was trying to figure out what the Joseph Plateau Award is. It's an award that's given uh, to honor cinematic achievements in the film industry, but they're restricted to Belgian cinema and Belgian producers, directors, and actors. So uh, this was the very first of these Joseph Plateau Awards. They're, they're awarded by the Flanders International Film Festival of of gent or ghent i'm not exactly sure but it's it's an award that they give periodically it doesn't seem like it's always given um but i was like huh, belgian and i guess i just uh you know i'm not exactly sure what the connection is uh to kind of uh belgium films as far as this film but um but there you go joseph plateau award it did win did it do any good at the box office Well, even after Heaven's Gate, even if it was a few years later, the studio still gave Chimino $21.5 million for his budget for this. Then again, maybe they gave him $22 million, or was it $24 million? It's really hard to say, as there are actually three conflicting sources out there. I'm just going to go with the highest number for our purposes, which is adjusted to $57.1 million in today's dollars. The movie opened August 16, 1985, opposite Volunteers, you know, I love that one, The Return of the Living Dead, and The Bride. None of the new releases could break past Back to the Future and Pee-wee's Big Adventure, both still holding number one and two spots respectively. This film landed in spot five and stayed in their top ten for five weeks, but it still didn't end up with much of a profit, landing only $18.7 million domestically and $11.7 million internationally for an adjusted total gross of $72.3 million. But it did better than Heaven's Gate, landing adjusted profit per finished minute of $114,000, giving Chimino cred to make the Sicilian two years later. All right, Andy. I it does. I'm going to spoil it. It doesn't do well on my flick chart. I think we should rank it. Let's get it <laughs> ripped off the band aid. This. I, why do I have a feeling we're going to have a number of rock paper scissors on this one? <laughs> well, I guarantee it. All right, it let's is, find it out. It is impossible not to have where it is on my chart. Uh, head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, it'll take you straight to this film in the flick chart database where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, Year of the Dragon or La Caja Fall? La Caja Fall. I'll say La Caja Fall. Year of the Dragon or Stripes? Stripes. I'll say Stripes. <laughs> Year of the Dragon or Labor Day? Um, I'm probably Labor Day. I'll say Year of the Dragon. All right. There we go. Let's do it. One, One two, two, three. Three. Paper. Scissors. <sighs> Year of the Dragon right. takes it. Year of the Dragon or Star Trek Insurrection. Insurrection. Let's see. Insurrection is the one with the aliens that I like so yes. much, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'll say Insurrection. Year of the Dragon or Oliver. 
Oliver. I'll say Year of the Dragon. All right. Here we go. One, One two, two, three. three. Rock. 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 Scissors. Oh. Oliver takes it. Year of the Dragon or Say Anything. Say Anything? Say Anything. You're the dragon or near dark. Near dark. I'll say near dark. You're the dragon or amor. Amor. I'll say amor. You're the dragon or gone with the wind. Oh, this is a real Sophie's choice for me. (laughs) I somehow don't think you're using that term quite right. (laughs) This particular case. Which child do I like the least? You go. Um, I think I will go Gone with the Wind. Yikes! It's just a it. It's just, even if yeah, you watch I'll it on Gone mute, with the wind. it it's a beautiful film. So no, I mean it, there's a lot there. It has plenty yeah. of issues, but I'll still say Gone with the Wind. Uh, not as many rock paper scissors in there as I thought we would. Uh, it landed in spot four thirty two out of four ninety three on our chart. That is a twelve percent. Fairly low. It's, fairly low. And it's higher than me. I, I figured it would the way you're talking about. How, how'd it do for you? It landed. It did better than that for me. It landed in spot 2041 out of 4559 or a 55%. Wow. That that's really high. I was actually surprised at quite how low it went uh, for me because, uh, like you said, I, I mean, I, I had an idea where I kind of wanted this to land uh, on Letterboxd. Um, but it this this dropped to thirteen ninety six out of fourteen eighty seven, uh, which is a six percent, and that's pretty low. Is it that low? <sighs> is it too low? <laughs> uh, you know, once we're down here, we're we're dealing over nonsense. I it is a um, it, if I go by the algorithm over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a half star movie, uh, which I do think is too low. And on Letterbox, I'm going to give it a, a one star. I'm not going back to it again. Uh, there was some good stuff in the Chinese crime, as we discussed. But you know what? I feel like I can I can go find that elsewhere in better movies. I'm going to give it two and a half stars um, and I'll give it a heart. I, I think. There are a lot of problems, but there's also a lot of strengths to it. I found it a very easy watch. Um, I enjoyed it, even with all the eye rolling I was doing at, at pretty much everything involving any human relationships other than between the good guy am, and the bad guy. I am blown away by that. Be- like That is you being, I think, legendarily forgiving of quibbles. That may be. I the don't know. Most I can be forgiving. pretty forgiving. <laughs> I, I think. I think generally, when I have couples, that's when I'm most forgiving. <laughs> Seemingly, yeah. uh, you know. I just. I. I don't know. I. I. I see the issues with the film, and I definitely have them. But I. I can also see that the filmmakers were trying to do something interesting, and and so to that end, I'm like, you know, I. I have a hard time faulting it too much because I'm like, I can tell where they were going with it. They don't get there. But I think it's interesting. And I just I was just mesmerized by everything involving um, John Lone and everything going on in Chinatown. So it was it was easy for me to I, I just get worry that people are going to listen to this and hear you say, OK, anytime two people were on screen talking to each other, it was terrible. Two and a half stars and a heart. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've rated uh, probably worse films higher and better films lower. So, yeah, right. what are you well, do? hey, I'm the 2001 <laughs> guy. What are you going to do? All right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Where do we go from here? 
we're going to be jumping to Salvador, which uh, is an interesting uh, film and a return to Oliver Stone in the director's chair. This is a a film he wrote with Richard Boyle, and it's about a journalist in uh, you know shooting stories down in uh, I think well El Salvador in during the, a revolution and getting involved in it um, you know as a journalist shouldn't. So my recollection of this is that it's uh, an exciting story, but I haven't seen it since college, so I'm curious to jump back into this one and look at it again. Outstanding. Never seen it. Excited to see it and see uh, if we. If we get a little bit better uh, experience with uh, the stone when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth Andrew. As Letterbox always do it. All right. I I actually I didn't know what to do, so I went unrated, but now I realize it could be that this movie is a zero star movie by this person. It <laughs> 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 only just occurred to me that that may be what I'm seeing. Uh I'm gonna read it anyway. Can I? Do it. Do it. You're the Dragon uh, from Sally Jane Black, who says, if this film were an examination of the psychological effects of the Vietnam War and of racism in general, it would be a masterpiece. Instead, it's a gangster film with just a light dose of the former two qualities, both of which are drowned out in hyper-macho posturing, actual racism, and sexism. While the film does not necessarily paint these as positives, I feel like it fails to deliver fully on how destructive and painful those things are. That said, there are a few moments that are worth noting. The scene where Joey Ty speaks to his connection and presents his presents a head is a classic, badass sort of moment, and the horrifying attack of Mickey Rourke in his home is well done and shocking. No stars, but, you know, <laughs> that, it kind of fills uh, my, it, it fills out my rants about the movie. It was a good attack on his house. Yeah. I did like that. Again, it's it's the crime story. Right. Works. I've got a three star by Molly Leach that says, drink every time any character says, you people. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good, actually. Thanks, Molly. I'm going to like that review. <laughs> That's really good. All right. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I have tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. 
If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.